If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be verse 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And before I read the text, let's pray together and let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, it is in the blessed name of Christ we come to you. We come seeking, Lord, your favor, your special favor. Lord, that you might be pleased to not only be present in our midst, but Lord, as our Father who has sent us a blessed Savior, that you would open our eyes, our hearts, that we might perceive, we might see, Lord, that we might be able to grasp, Lord, the teaching of your word this morning, that you would come and, Lord, correct us, instruct us, that you would come and fill our minds with truth, our hearts, Lord, with a a holy desire to commune with you and to do your most marvelous and good will. Now, Father, we come to look at this amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us in Christ. Broaden our understanding of this amazing grace. Help us to grasp it, to understand it, Lord, that we might live in accordance with that wonderful gift and revelation that in even listening and knowing and, Lord, seeing in your word of its efficacy, of its power, of its purpose, Lord, that we would be corrected in any way that is contradicting to it. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse four. Hear now the word of the living God. And Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved, as we continue our study this morning of the book of Corinthians, we have certainly been confronted with the need for reformation in the church of Corinth. We've been exposed to some of the issues and the problems that Paul was addressing in this letter and the whole letter's purpose, first and second Corinthians, is to reform the church, that local church there in Corinth. Corinth was a mighty city It was a gateway city. It was connecting two regions, Europe and Asia Minor. It was affluent politically, affluent uh, in in finances. It was a, a 
In fact, some historians believe by the time Paul wrote this letter, it was even taking over academia, that it was uh, surpassing Athens as it was in philosophy. So it was becoming a center of, of philosophical rhetoric and whatnot. And so Paul was sent there by God. If you read Acts 17 and 18, it was God that sent Paul to Corinth because God told Paul, he said, I have many there for my namesake. I want you to go preach the gospel in this very humanistic very secular, very pagan city. I'm going to send you and through you, Paul, in the preaching of this gospel of grace in Christ, I am going to call my people out of this bastion of humanism and I'm going to build my church there. I'm going to manifest my church in this place. And Paul being obedient to Christ, being obedient to the will of God, went and preached the gospel, and many became converted. It didn't take long for, of course, Satan to attack the church there. Satan is always the great adversary of the truth, adversary of the church. Beloved, that's been true from the very beginning, and it was true when Paul wrote this letter. It is true today. If we're going to be a church that is dedicated to the profound teaching of the gospel of grace, the profound cosmic headship of Jesus Christ, you can bet that Satan is going to come and he's going to oppose us in many different ways. He will seek to compromise, infiltrate, and pollute the truth of Jesus Christ. That's why we must ever be on guard in our own hearts. That's why we must come uh, when we gather together for worship, we must come ready to submit ourselves to the, the gospel of truth. We must submit ourselves to the will of God. We must be willing to confess our sins. We must be willing to be washed with the word of God. We must be willing to reform ourselves so that we are not the avenue or the gate in which Satan is able to come and infiltrate the church. We must die to selfishness and we must die to those things that we perceive to be primary when they are nothing more than personal preferences. I have stated this and I'll continue to state it. I have seen churches absolutely destroyed over personal preferences, not over doctrine, not over the headship of Christ, not over the gospel of sovereign grace, not over the gifts of the church and the exercise of the church corporately in the, in, in the visible community and what. No, but over preferences. And we must be on guard against such things. Beloved, this morning's message is all about God's grace. It's all about the grace of God. That's how Paul starts off this portion of chapter one. He begins with thanking God, what? Concerning the grace of God, which was given to them in Christ Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, whatever you know about the grace of God, I imagine by the end of this sermon, you're going to think it was very narrow because God's grace is amazing in the real sense of the word amazing. Amazing. 
It's comprehensive. It's broad. It's enriching. It's empowering. It's efficacious. It's adorning. It is a very rich Christian concept when we go talking about the grace of God. I guess the first thing that I want to bring to your attention about this grace is how exclusive and unique it is to Christians. For grace is a concept that addresses this idea of something unmerited, unearned. It's the idea that all of these blessings and benefits that we experience and participate in and enjoy and exercise or flow out of God's unmerited favor. Now, whatever you say, as I defined it last week, when as we addressing those four doctrinal heads found in verses one through three, we have to acknowledge, beloved, that when we talk about favor, it's unmerited favor. When we talk about kindness, it's unmerited kindness that God bestows upon us. When we talk about uh, uh, anything, salvation, gifts, we have to add to that, that, that word unmerited because it is something that God does freely of his own good and perfect will. So this grace is truly amazing in every way and comprehensive. Grace is something that no other religion shares. The Christian church does not share the doctrine of grace with any other religion. Why? Well, but based upon what I just said, because every other religion is a religion based upon works. It's based upon something earned. It's based upon something that is given because of some action of the worshiper or the servant, if you will. Whether it be Islam or whether it be uh, Jehovah Witness or whether it be Mormonism or you start getting into some of this middle, this middle Eastern religions and whatnot, but it is all a merit-based religion. Just so there's no grace. And Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. If it's to be merited and earned, it cannot be grace or gracious. So this Amazing grace that we have the joy of looking at this morning is exclusively unique, beloved, to the visible church, to the Christian church that's both visible and invisible, but exercising that grace in the visible church. Now, why is it important for Paul to sort of begin this letter of reforming the Corinthian church, laying this solid foundation of amazing grace. Well, he has to remind them of their place. They have to be reminded of the, of the foundation that they stand upon, that it's not something due to their own cleverness or wisdom. 
our affluence, our political power, right? That the church does not exist because, and they're not members of that church at Corinth because they were the brightest and the best. I think oftentimes we ourselves forget what it was like growing up into the Reformed faith. We didn't, many of us didn't start there, did we? Some of us came through a, 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 a season of testing and challenges and doctrinal challenges and learning and growing and being confronted and, and looking at the Bible in different ways and, and really having to prayerfully consider and submit ourselves and our minds and our thoughts to, well, the, well the, the sound teaching and the real meaning of God's word, if you will. And so we come here through seasons of trial and education. And somehow when we arrive here, we often look back and judge our other brothers and sisters that are on the same path as what are they thinking? Why don't they see it the way reform people see it? You know, there is a, I think a, a valid criticism of the reformed church and that is it's very arrogant. And I think it's valid. And I think we have to fight that arrogance. The church at Corinth was arrogant too. And Paul begins by affirming and reminding them of this amazing grace that has established them, called them, gifted them, established them, and benefiting them. He's reminding them that it's not because of who they are necessarily that they, that they have somehow earned these privileges and rights. And so therefore they have all of this privilege within the church to do whatever they want and to think whatever they want. Paul's correcting that. And he begins correcting that by laying this Foundation of amazing grace. I think we too benefit from looking at this Christian doctrine of God's grace that's only found in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, as we look at these verses, let's begin by just recognizing that Paul, in verse 4, not only just opens up with this act of worship, because thanksgiving is an act of worship, but Paul says, I thank my God always. It is something that stimulates Paul uh, wherever he may be, he, wherever, whatever he's doing, that when he thinks about this amazing grace, when he thinks about the church, he gives, well, God thanksgiving. He's thankful and he says, I'm even thankful for you. And this is a church that is really, it is, well, consumed with strife and immorality and doctrinal misunderstanding or ignorance and abuses to one another. And he says, I'm thankful to God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. That is exclusive because again, as I said, it's only for the Christian church because it's only found in Christ. It's given by God, but it comes through Christ. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the church. 
It is sovereignly bestowed and Christ sends his spirit into the world to distribute these graces. This is a gratitude that is well-founded, beloved, and it's a gratitude that we should share with the Apostle Paul. When you think about coming to worship, and we may come with many difficulties, any given week, who knows what we will come Who knows what God will bring into our lives that we will have to contend with, the challenges that we'll have to pray through, and that we still are summoned and commanded to come to worship to do what? What? To give thanks to God. Primarily for the grace of God that's been bestowed upon each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. That is worthy of contemplation and consideration. As I said, beloved, this morning earlier, is that this grace is, it is full, rich, and comprehensive. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, he's talking about this grace. This grace that Paul says has enriched them. That same grace that has enriched you and me. In Acts 11 and verse 23, we talk about this grace of God. It says, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Meaning that the grace of God, as it was manifested in the visible church in Acts 11, what, is it, what did it do? It caused praise and thanksgiving. It was visible. There's a visible manifestation of this sovereign grace. It's witnessed. It can be seen. It's experienced. And when it is, it causes God's people to rejoice. It causes God's people to give God praise. It causes us to be thankful to God because without that grace, we're just part of the world under his condemnation and just judgment. What is the great segregator of this world? Well, in a sinful world, well, in a righteous world, it's sin. In that great covenant of works, what was the great segregator? It's when Satan came and tempted Eve and sin entered into the world. And then there was a great division between man and God. Well, after sin, what's the great segregator in the world? God's grace. It is God's grace that segregates people, tribes, tongues, and nations. It's God's grace that adorns cultures, nations, and peoples. It's God's grace that empowers them, that enriches them. 
It's the stimulation, if you will. It's the impetus of what we might even call education, that God's grace empowering, enlightening your mind, that we may understand the deep mysteries of God and able to exercise cultural dominion in this world. It is no accident, beloved, that many in the past, great inventors, great composers, great people were Christians. That would give all glory to God because God's grace had enriched their lives. And of course, Corinth is a church that is struggling with what the world calls enrichment. The synchronizing, if you will, of these worldly philosophies and and, and that's what Paul deals with in these first four chapters when he talks about the, the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. And yet, beloved, it's all the foundation of God's amazing grace. Hmm. Well, let's look at this grace. Let's begin to open up some of it because when you when you look at whether it's the scriptures or you look at reformed confessions i mean it is dominated by the word grace the grace of salvation the grace of jesus christ the grace of the word of god the grace of faith the grace of repentance <laughs> i mean the covenant of grace I mean, I, I sat down and in my notes literally wrote like 19 different designations of grace. Some of those being that sovereign administered grace that leads to the empowerment of salvation for by grace you have been saved. Some of those are those benefits and virtues that the church is to preach and teach and bestow those responsibilities onto the congregation. Those too are called graces. So not only do we assemble by the grace of God, but we are also to interact with the grace of God. We are empowered by that grace and we are then adorned by that grace. We wear those graces. Those, those graces are that Christian character. It's those things that we don't take credit for. I think it's Proverbs chapter 3. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. And this is the, the idea here. Listen to what he says in Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching. That's a grace. But let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and the years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now those are, you know what he's saying there? Let your life be adorned just as you put on your clothes. 
just as you get your hair cut the way you like it. Adorn yourself with these graces. Exhibit these graces in your life so that what? What does he talk about this favor? Now, favor's a grace. Remember, it's unmerited favor. But that's why God puts the Spirit in you so that in that, the working of the Spirit that he manifests us to be able to understand and proceed the teaching of the Word of God that we begin to put on these virtues so that we walk favorably with our God and others. Now, beloved, there are men and women who walk in a way that we would call with moral integrity. But that's not the same thing because none of those things have favor with God. There are people that do the right things for all the wrong reasons. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a Christian a believer in the Old Testament, putting on these graces and adorning their lives so that their lives manifest the glory of Almighty God. What does Paul say in Corinthians 10? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. That, that this comprehensive grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ to you, you are to adorn your life with it so that you exhibit in your life, well, the favor of God and even the favor of those who understand who you are and what you've become in Christ. Because not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to want to be your friend. Paul had many enemies, and so will you if you adorn your life with the graces of Almighty God. Now, this adornment of grace, beloved, is also not to be abused. That is, that is make no mistake about it, this is the goal, this is a part of what we're doing here this morning, that as you learn the word of God, as you are, are, are reminded or maybe even taught these responsibilities that you maybe never heard before, maybe you have heard them, but you have forgotten them, but that you begin to reassess your life, reform your life, putting on this, uh, uh, these grace adornments so that you exhibit the glory of God. And then guess what happens to the schisms in the church? They begin to fall away. What happens to the immorality in the church? It begins to, well, fall away. What happens to when the arrogance of the, the, well, I speak in tongues, I have all the gifts. Well, that begins to fall away. Why? Because we are then recognizing, as Paul did when he wrote the letter, he goes, listen, I have all the gifts, but I glory in nothing but Christ. I'm not here to brag about how many gifts I have, how many God has given me in Christ. I'm not here to do that with you. But what I'm here to say is I have more than you, but yet that's nothing compared to knowing Christ. This is not a competition. This is a body. This is an edifice. This is a house. This is a spiritual and holy temple. This is the, the loaf and the bread of God. We are members of one another. 
You benefit from me and my gifts, and I benefit from you and your gifts. And that's why Paul had to teach them, when one hurts, we all suffer. But what happens, but what happens when we, we don't adorn these graces? What happens when we come to church and we, and we find ourselves lazy in these things? We find ourselves becoming indifferent to them. We go through the motions. Well, then we provoke God to anger. It's an offense to him because this is why he gave you these grace gifts that you might adorn yourself, that you might be empowered by them, that you might utilize them, that you might be thankful for them and you would praise him for those things. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. And this is a proof text that's used by the divines in relationship to those Old Testament graces. That is, these ceremonies, these, these rituals of the what we call the church under age, if you will. Paul says, or the confession talks about how they exhibited not only the person and work of Christ, but also his graces. Okay. But look at verse 1 of uh, Deuteronomy 29. It says, and these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Now, this is verse 4. This is our, our focus. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Now, now what is that verse teaching us? Well, that verse, first of all, teaches us that they had hardened their hearts to these graces, to these revelations, to the preaching of the word of Moses, right? The word of God in Moses. That they had hardened their hearts to these things. And because of they hardened their hearts, God was judging them with a, what we call spiritual stupor or laziness. To whom much is given, much is required. And whenever those who have been given much do not utilize the much given, what, what begins to happen? God begins to take those things away. They're not automatic and they're just not forever. They are conditional. The visible church has this conditional element to it. If this, then that. That if is a very important word in the Bible. If you do these things, you will be preserved. You will persevere you will grow in grace. Well, here's the problem. The problem is they did not take seriously or have any passion or any love, any desire to commune with God in the graces that God had bestowed upon them and showed them. 
They didn't want to commune with God through the revelation and the manifestation of those graces. And therefore, they brought judgment upon themselves and their own hearts were hardened. Beloved, listen to me. That will happen to you too. It will happen to me. If we treat the grace of God as something common, nothing special. You know, that's one of the other words that the the confession uses, special grace as a designation of God's saving grace. Why? What's special grace? Well, special grace tells us then there's an ordinary grace, that there's a common grace. But to the church... To those who rest in Jesus Christ, it is special grace. And we ought to treat special grace as something special. Amen? We can take for granted the preaching of the gospel. We can take for granted the gathering of God's people. We can take for granted even the singing of hymns. We can take for granted the prayers that are offered up on our behalf in worship. We can take for granted the the encouragement of the body. We can take for granted all of these blessings and this favor that God is bestowing upon us. And when we do that, we are spiritually slapping God's hand and then treating these special gifts and graces as if they're just ordinary and common and they're just not a big deal. This is offensive to God. And this, this has an effect upon us because when we begin to do that, we begin to harden our own hearts. We become slow in our minds. We become sluggish in our thinking. And listen, listen, this is what Paul, turn over to Hebrews chapter six. Let me give you another proof text to show you what happens when we do not uh, move in accord with these graces given to us in the church. And it's obvious that the church at Corinth had, was guilty of this too. Why? Because they had, well, moved on from the apostles' teaching and they were now looking to incorporate some of these social and cultural influencers to basically lead them in life. And so uh, Paul had to realign their thinking. But in Hebrews, this is something different, but it's related The the book of Hebrews was written in order to encourage God's people to stand fast in the faith. There were hardships and persecutions rising up and God's people were being, well, were in trial. And they were being persecuted. And many thought, well, you know what? In order to address the persecution, I'll just walk away from the faith. That'll solve the problem. Well, the writer of Hebrews says you can't do that. That's an impossibility. You don't want to do that. You don't want to abandon Christ. You don't want to apostatize from Christ. You want to suffer, if you will, these challenges and hardships by the grace given to you in Christ. That Christ would supply all that you need in grace in order for you to stand firm and strong in the midst of that trial and temptation. It's another thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. But look at 
the idea here. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 11 and following. It says, concerning him. Now, the writer's talking about Christ here. He's just talked about the doctrine of the Son of God in verse 8, 9, and 10 of, of the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. A very deep doctrine. He says, now concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, he's not saying that it's a hard doctrine. He's saying it's hard to explain it to you. Why? Because you have become dull in your understanding. You, you've, you've ceased to take advantages of these graces and adorn yourselves and be thankful and praise God for them. And you have become dull and hardened in your understanding. He says, for, this, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I'm going to stop there. Let me make a few comments. Brothers and sisters, what do we see in these verses is that as we begin to grow and prosper in these graces, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we've been enriched in knowledge and speech. But when we don't treat these graces as special, as divine, as God's favor and God's gifts to us, the effect it has on us when we neglect that reality and truth is that we become slow in our thinking, slow in our hearts. We become calloused in our hearts. We, become, we begin to harden our hearts toward the reality and the truth of Almighty God. And it causes the teaching and the preaching of the gospel to be dumbed down and simplified. Why? Because as the writer of Hebrews says, I can't teach you these things, not because, you're, uh, not because these things are far beyond your understanding, but because you have neglected those things. You brothers and sisters, why does the church in America, why is it we, it's, we got churches on every street corner and yet we're, we're, like, we're like children, morally, emotionally. This is the mindset of people that say, I don't really want to know doctrine. I don't really want to know my Bible. I, I just need to know Jesus, that's all. I just need to know he died for me. I don't need to know anything else. I don't need to go to church. I can worship God any, anywhere, I, any place. I can, I can worship God there. Completely neglecting the environment that God's grace is uniquely and particularly manifested in like this environment right here. Where God promises in Christ to walk in our midst, wherever two or more gathered in my name, there I will be. And he talks about them practicing righteousness, training their minds and hearts to do what? 
Well, with these graces so that they are fully able and capable of hearing the word of righteousness preached to them. What happens in the modern day church when, when the, the pastor's not entertaining enough when he doesn't illustrate, when he, when he doesn't alliterate all of his points in the sermon, if he doesn't have those unique examples and the stories and all of these things, why, we say, well, we, people leave and they go, hey, I didn't really get anything out of it. It is not the job of the pastor to entertain you. It's the job of the pastor to instruct you in doctrine in righteousness, to rebuke you if necessary, as Paul is doing to the Corinthians. What is Paul doing to the Corinthians? Before he begins in verse 10, rebuking them for their schism, he says, let me remind you of the grace of God that you've been given in Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the enrichment that you have in Christ. Let me lay the foundation. Let me, let me put this out there so that you know where I'm coming from because you have left this grace. You have forgotten this amazing grace and you're guilty of arrogance. You're, you're, you're guilty of turning the church against one another. You know, oh, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with this one and that one. And he says, none of that. It's about Christ. That didn't please Apollos. It didn't please Paul. He says, no, I didn't come to set before you myself. I came to set before you Christ. In Hebrews 6, let me just, let me just read verse 9. I mean, you can read those first eight verses and, and he talks about instruction and he talks about partakers of the Holy Spirit and whatnot. But notice verse nine, because this is the encouragement part. And this is, I, I want you to see this. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, so listen, listen, it's important that this morning as we begin to contemplate God's amazing grace, we have to, well, not just look at it, but we have to examine ourselves by it. Because this same grace that was bestowed upon those Christians that Paul was writing to is the same grace bestowed upon us in Christ. It's the same grace that Paul says this is, has enriched them. Notice verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him. Why are, you, why are you seeking these YouTube influencers? Why are you seeking these philosophers, these popular philosophers? What are you doing going out into the world trying to find the answers to life? Were you not enriched in Christ? Why are you leaving him? Why are you forgetting about Christ? 
Because this grace is not only something you adorn, it is something that has empowered you. What does Paul say? It has enriched you in speech and all knowledge. It has done a work in you. When you talk about speech and you talk about knowledge, you're talking about that things that flow from the heart. That God has come into your life and he has changed you. He has changed you fundamentally. He has changed you from the heart out. He has given you a new heart. So much so, that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians that you know, some of you were thieves and homosexuals and some of you were robbers and, and, and uh, haters and immoral, but, but, but hey, no more, for you are now in Christ. You're no longer these things. You are new creations in Christ. I just wish, even as a pastor but a, a counselor, I wish people could grasp that understanding. I wish Christians could grasp what that means. It's almost as if we take Christ and we just have an addendum to who we are. I'm still who I am, but oh, I'm a Christian. That's not how it works. Because the grace that Paul is talking about all through the book of Corinthians is an empowering grace. It's a changing grace. It's an effectual grace. It's the grace that Christ gives to, well, sinners to now become what believers by grace, look at, uh, turn to second, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter two. What a, a text of scripture to help us see and understand what we once were and what we are now in Christ. And Chapter two, verse one, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the environment that we lived in before Christ. That's the sphere. The sphere we lived in is trespasses and sins. This is the fear of trespasses and sin. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now let that sink in because what Paul is doing is he's magnifying the amazing grace of God in the next verse. Meaning in these three verses or in these, uh, yeah, in these three verses, what Paul is saying is there was nothing about you that influenced God to give you anything good. There was nothing about you inwardly or outwardly that moved God to say to himself, now this one is worthy of salvation. No, not at all. For we have all lived in this environment of arrogance, anger, bitterness, lusts. And Paul says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That unmerited favor, that power that comes into our lives through Christ that makes us new creations. 
When we come and join the church and we take membership vows, what are we saying? That by the grace of God, we're going to live as becometh Christians, believers. That we're going to whatever stage of our Christianity that we're in, we're going to take seriously. Whatever I know, whatever I understand, whatever that I'm able to comprehend, I'm going to live consistently with that revelation, with that knowledge, and with that understanding, and I will continue to grow in grace, and my life will continue to reflect that growth. That's why, beloved, some of the most dearest people in this congregation are some of the oldest saints. They are adorned with grace. And truth because of their walk with God. And he continues to the very end of their days to adorn them with grace. We have no excuse. We have no excuse, beloved, but when we consider this amazing grace of God that it have an impact upon our lives that we first of all See, first, the thanksgiving of Paul. Are we thankful? Do we come with thanksgiving? Do we come say, oh, I'm thankful for Christ, and yet we don't take seriously the graces and the benefits that Christ has bestowed and given to us? We have to be consistent in that. When we come with his name upon our lips, we must embrace those gifts and benefits that he's bestowed upon the church and utilize them and adorn ourselves with them. And we must judge ourselves. What does Paul say when he's laying out the Lord's Supper? That we would consider ourselves, amen? That we would look at ourselves and find out where are we lacking in this knowledge and understanding that we've been enriched with? Are we living consistently with it so then we can come and commune with Christ even more in the supper? That if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That we would consider ourselves, that we would see our flaws, that we would see our blemishes, if you will. And we would take care of them. We would remedy them. How? By the grace of God, making use of those things. Prayer is a grace. Thanksgiving is a grace. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 and 7 talks about two things. Number one, the patience, the grace of patience. We've already seen the grace of thanksgiving. Here we see the grace of patience. I shall wait upon my Lord and Savior to work as he sees sovereignly fit. We don't all grow in the same, in the same speed, do we? We don't all experience the same challenges. But whatever they are. And Paul says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Beloved, are you are a walking confirmation of the testimony of Christ to his grace. Don't contradict it. Don't live in contradiction to it. Embrace it. And then with patience, do what? 
Understand that you will wait. I lack nothing, but I will wait upon my Lord to reveal and manifest what I need, when I need it, how I need it. We're not all the same. We are of the same body, the same building, the same loaf. We are all connected, but we're not all the same in the same place. And God is working in each and every one of us. And Paul here is having to confront the church at Corinth to reform themselves just a few years after being established as a church. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. He says, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus? Notice the eschatology of grace. There's an eschatology of grace that not only has this grace happened, not only is this grace happening, but we eagerly await for the manifestation of uh, the what? The future grace that will be given to us. And what is that future grace? The heavenly reward. The heavenly reward. The inheritance, the promise that it's not in vain, that we are grounded, we're established upon this grace, Christ continues to pour out this grace, and yet we continue to wait upon this future grace that we will be revealed as what? The sons of God, the daughters of God. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord. Think about that. The things that you long for now to be blameless. I want to be blameless in my speech. I want to be blameless in my thought life. I want to be blameless in my interactions with you, but I'm not always. I'm not. I fail. And I have to walk in repentance. But I long for that day in which that title of blameless is firmly attached and fixated upon me for that future grace of eternity. It's stimulating. It enlivens the Christian's hope, doesn't it? And it does make us what? Want to put away these worldly influences. What are we thinking? What are we doing? You don't have any business here. Who invited you here? Forgive me for inviting this man, this philosophy, this idea into our church. Forgive me. And then verse nine, for God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I wish I could say that my eternity, just, my, just the, 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 the victory of my life was based upon my own faithfulness, and it's not. We're here to acknowledge as Christians this morning that we're thankful for God's faithfulness. We're thankful for his, his grace that is saving, it is, it's power, it's beneficial, it's, it's, it's character. 
the gifts. You know, we lack nothing to do what we need to do here. You know that? All that God has called us to do, he's gifted us to do. We lack nothing. God is faithful to us. God is not lacking here in, in, in that. Now, we may not have what we need to do, what we perceive we need to do, but we have everything God's called us to do. He's enriched us. He's blessed us. He's gifted us. And he is faithful. He's faithful, beloved. And notice the, 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 the venue of this faithfulness is through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, ongoing communion with Christ. Ongoing communion with Jesus. And beloved, we are fixing to commune with Christ in this supper. We'll contend with the message we've heard. We'll have to take and examine ourselves by it and then we come and commune with Jesus Christ. And God is going to be faithful to you. And he's going to empower you to live in expectation to that communion. Now, you can't see it. In all of the times that you've taken the Lord's Supper, you've never seen Christ come down and sit beside you. But we trust that God is faithful and he's making this application that he is making this application to us, that, that when we do these things by faith, that that faith is activated by God as effectual in our lives. It's empowering. It's, it's not our faith that's empowering, it's God empowering our faith. It's God working in Christ for our patience. It's God working in Christ for our thanksgiving. It's God working in Christ to you for your praise and worship. That's what Paul says in, in, in chapters three and chapters four. He says, it's not I, but Christ. It's not me, it's Christ. Meaning I do these things, yes, I live this out. Yes, I, I stand fast, I'm standing firm, I'm telling the truth, I'm, I'm fighting evil. But all of these things I do, I do it for, for Christ's sake. I do it because he's empowering me to do it. I take no credit for it. Christ is using me for his own glory and I'm so thankful he is. And brothers and sisters, let us consider this amazing grace of God as we begin looking at our lives, looking at our families, looking at this church. Let's not forsake this foundation. Let's not minimize the means of grace. Let's not become indifferent to it. Let's remember it is special and we need to treat it as special. And remember it is also our hope. We long to wait for that great benefit in heaven. <laughs> that great glorification where we are made in that righteousness of Christ. Never to sin again. We wait for it. And we wait with the full expectation that we will have it in Christ. Let's pray. 
Now, Father, do bless the teaching of your word. Lord, we pray that this grace would be broader and richer and deeper than it's ever been before. Father, we are thankful for the gifts that you've bestowed upon us. We're thankful, Lord, that you are faithful. And we pray and ask, Lord, that you would make all that we've heard this reality in our own hearts, in our own minds. Let us contemplate the richness, the riches we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.